Hello, and welcome to episode 149 of the In Squash podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. I hope everyone's doing well, uh, slowly, surely, maybe, getting back on the squash court still as of uh, yet. Uh, my court hasn't opened up. I think I mentioned that uh, last time that we might be getting on court, and uh, still as of... Uh, 629-2020, we're still not on the court, but uh, with any luck, it might be this week. But uh, anyways, episode 149 is uh, one of the best that we've we've had to date. Uh, we have uh, Brian Patterson on, and I had to reach out to, to him thanks to uh, Renee Denny. Shout out to Renee Denny for helping uh, set this one up. But after uh, Squash Skills put on their uh, Bronx Tale documentary, uh, looking into uh, uh, what uh, the power of squash in the Bronx and what City Squash has done there to bring in the community and to help underprivileged uh, children through the game of squash and Brian uh, tells a bit more of that story but we go in uh, uh, obviously that's a fantastic story but we go in uh, a little bit deeper in terms of uh, who Brian is many people obviously know him but some of you might not and uh, former top uh, 15 player in the world I believe uh, maybe, maybe he reached 16 in the world but he's got a fantastic uh, squash backstory uh, Drysdale Cup stories uh, I believe that was like the, the biggest amateur squash event uh, in the history of the game back in the day um, getting uh, to the final of the world championship having to go through qualifying all the way to the final to play uh, Cameron Nancaro Cam Nancaro in the final the Australian legend uh, he talks a lot about that uh, you know those days back when he was playing uh, hooking up with Jonah Barrington and the training and and uh, uh, some really uh, great anecdotes there. Uh, the fellow by the name of Bomber, I uh, forget his uh, family name, uh, but uh, a legend in the coaching game in the UK back in the day, and uh, Jonah would oftentimes uh, bring guys out and train with him, and they were as you might expect, uh, extremely entertaining, and also very, very tough sessions, and uh, Brian discusses that, and uh, you may not know this, but Brian um, uh, had a shoe deal with, uh, with Patrick. He was the first Squash player to 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 wear those uh, great squash shoes back in the day, and he had a fantastic. He was like the uh, they were like the Air Jordans of the, of the squash uh, world back then. In terms of shoe deal that Michael Jordan got with uh, Nike, uh, Brian received a very similar, very lucrative uh, shoe deal, which was kind of unheard of back in the day uh, with Patrick. And he talks about how that all played out, and so much more here uh, with Brian Patterson today. Uh, of course, we talk about how he managed to. Uh, to find his way uh, stateside into the coaching game there uh, way back in the, in the early days when he was playing and he just uh, I guess he became enamored with uh, with North America and in particular maybe even the Canadian winters I'm not sure uh, he did not mention that but I think uh, there must be something to that but anyways Brian Patterson on episode 149 today now before we get into that I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor active scout and they're right in the midst of of uh, you know, rolling out Active Scout right now. Now the clubs are slowly but surely uh, opening up. Active Scout is a growth and retention tool for squash clubs. Now the clubs are slowly looking to open their doors. We want to help your community grow. Not all members are returning from this break, so growing club membership is more important than ever before. Start with you and a few of your regular partners. Active Scout can be your chat tool for arranging games or for going for a job. Don't, uh, I use WhatsApp sometimes but uh, that can be a bit clunky. So give Active Scout a try. 
Now, post updates about your club on the social platform and check out what other clubs are doing to get up and running faster. The next step is let your club manager know about Active Scout. If your club still uses pen and paper as a booking system, this is an opportunity to upgrade for free. That's right for free. Uh, if your club already has a booking system, let us know what your system is and we will shortlist it for platform integration. Active Scout was designed by Level 3 Coach to help grow our sport, so reach out to us today. Active Scout is now beta testing. I, st I still think they are beta testing. Uh, contact Rob at ActiveScout.com or should be Rob, yes, Rob at ActiveScout.com and the website is ActiveScout.com and we will send you a link to download the app. The email is just like the website, Rob at ActiveScout.com. That's ActiveScout without the E and we've got episode 149 with Brian Patterson. Uh, Brian, it's great to have you on and I just want to, uh, again, um, just tell you on behalf of the squash uh, community just how uh, special uh, you are and, and how proud uh, I think we all are of what you and um, you know Bro uh, city squash are doing with, with the uh, with the, the program the, the programs that you're running there and you're behind it all there in in the Bronx it's a special thing and Bronx tale really brought that out so uh, thanks for all that you do uh, uh, for city squash it's a special uh, special thing thanks thank you and uh, great to have you on the podcast. Now, uh, obviously, you've, you're a director at Squash, uh, at City Squash. City you've Squash, been yeah. there um, since 2007 and stateside yeah. for, for several, uh, for several uh, 25, years. 25 years, Jerry. 25, yeah. yeah. 25 good yeah. years. Um, yeah. So uh, we'll get into that uh, a little bit, just how you wound up in, uh, in North America, in, in the States. But before we do, uh, obviously, you uh, you had a very very good per, uh, playing career uh, as a professional and a top player in England. So if we if you don't mind taking a look back at that, you reached uh, I think as high as number two uh, in England, and then uh, up uh, around 15 or 16 in the world. So uh, those were great days, I'm sure for you. Uh, if you don't mind sharing a, a little bit about your playing days with us, uh, because obviously that didn't. Uh, that was not mentioned in the Bronx Tale documentary. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, those, um, those days for you, I mean, for me, playing days were fantastic. Remember yeah. those really well. So um, at number two in England and top 16 in the world, uh, you must have enjoyed your time as a player. I did, Jerry. I really did enjoy my time as a player. I, 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 went to, I was fortunate to go to a school with two squash courts. We had a, a coach. He never came on court with us. He basically brought, brought the grades across each class across and explained the game to you, um, explained how you could book a court to play, you know, and just let you get on with it. Um, but he did, he did run the teams. Uh, and we had, a, you know, we had a, a first team and a second team. Um, and I, I was one of the, I think I might have been one of the youngest players to make the first team. Um, what was great about the first team was it was a team of five, unlike some uh, squash teams, uh, school teams where there may be seven or nine. It, we were a team of five. And it, it, one of the reasons that I enjoyed playing on that team was when we played against uh, clubs, against men, you know, because we would play, we'd play other schools, but we'd play uh, clubs against, against men. We would, when we went to play them, we were treated to great food. 
They, oh, they yeah. always made sure that there was a great spread afterwards. And conversely, when a men's team came to the school to play us, we were the only team that actually ate in the headmaster's study. And you got to believe it was not school food oh, because no. we had men there, you know, guys from uh, adults there. They made sure that the, the, the food was really good. So a great aspect for me was the food. It was great to be on a team where you got better food than you were getting at school, you know? Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, apart from that, um, you know, I, I, I was on the team. Um, I, I, I played three years at number one. Um, played went went to Mike. Uh, a really funny story was um, our coach. He signed up four or five of us. I can't remember the number. Playing a tournament in London just after Christmas. It was something like the the Evans Cup. You know, we were in the under under fourteens at that time. I think it was an under fourteen or fourteen and under. In other words, an under fifteen thing. And um, we were all like, "Yeah, great. We're all excited." And he phoned up my parents like the day you know boxing day to say hey you know just to check in to make sure that brian's ready to go to the tournament in london you know um he's playing this tournament and my parents were like what i hadn't i hadn't even told my parents i hadn't even yeah. told them that, that i was playing this tournament and they're like what he's playing the tournament what are you talking about he said well no we, we signed him up he's going down with three other guys to london um you know in two days time and they're like uh, why he well he never told us but my parents were they were the ilk like well you're signed up for this, you're going, you know, here's your ticket. You're staying with friends in London uh, that had been organized for us. And uh, you're getting on the train in two days time. They did, you know, there was no hassle from my parents. I was just like, well, he didn't tell us, but you know what? He's going. And yeah, um, yeah. down we went and played and, uh, you know, we all played well. I think I might've got the quarterfinals of that first tournament. But subsequently, we went every year just after Christmas to play in the tournament. And then at Easter, we went to play in the Drysdale Cup. And okay. I, I ended that's up. A big, that, that, that's a big one, isn't it? Uh, it was kind of like I'm, I'm, I'm stepping over the line here when I say, it, you know, you, you might call it way back, and this was in '63. You know, you'd like to think it might have been the unofficial World Under 19 Championships. There were one or two okay. kids from around the world that played in it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like it is today, where they have, you know, loads of countries and and kids from other companies playing but I won it in 63 and that was a big deal you know it was oh, a big wow. deal for oh, yeah. a big deal for the school big deal for me went off to college and played football in college um, I would have rather have been a soccer player Jerry a football player than a squash player quite honestly yeah. but I wasn't quite good enough and um, I I came out of college went to the Midlands Birmingham trained and played there with met Jonah Barrett and trained and played there and he was Jonah was the guy that was like look you should concentrate on squash, you know, forget yeah. your soccer, forget your football that you're playing. And I was playing in some leagues, some soccer leagues where you, where you got, uh, although being an amateur, you got, you got, you know, at the end of the end of the match, you got the money in your, in your shoe, you know, there's your 10 quid mate yeah. in your shoe, which yeah. was totally uh, non-amateur, but um, it was nice to get some money. But Jonah said, you, you know, you should go to London and train and play in London and play the leagues there. There were some big leagues there. And I went to London, played there and, um, made the uh, England and Great Britain side. And I played in the first um, European team championships up in Edinburgh. Uh, okay. I think it was 1970, might have been somewhere about 73, early 73. I mean, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh came. He was the patron of England squash. He came and introduced, you know, he, he met most of the teams. Um, so that was exciting. And then had made the Great Britain side to go and play in the world championships. Um, went to play in the World Championships in South Africa and um, 
we finished the team event. We finished second to Australia. I was at that time the number four player, the alternate player, but played some matches. Yeah. Um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget when we played the Australians. It was like it was one all, and this guy might phone me up and say, "What were you doing talking about me?" Um, a guy called Stuart Courtney, unbelievable talent um, from London, brilliant talent, was playing, and I can't remember the name of the guy he was playing. But he was up to love. And Stuart, we knew that if we were going to win it, Stuart had to win in three. If he didn't yeah. win in three, it was like, uh, 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 and of course he lost the third, lost the fourth, sort of took it very easy in the fourth. And then we thought, okay, he sort of rested in the fourth, into the fifth, and he, you know, he, 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 he lost in the fifth. Right. It was a close yeah. match, but he lost uh, three, two. Uh, so we ended up losing to South Africa. But then the, the individuals, um, I was I was a qualifier playing in the qualifier events, and I yeah. and, and I'll, ne- I'll never forget the the last match of the qualifiers. I was playing a guy called Selwyn Mashit from South Africa, and it was the days of the old scoring. And we went to five, and I think I won you ten. You were playing nine. for about three hours, right? Yeah, yeah, it was like two <laughs> hours, two and a half hours, and we went to five, and I won ten nine, literally ten nine oh, in the wow. fifth, to make it through into the first round of the, uh, the, the, the world individuals. Those and matches that, you know, could go on forever, couldn't they? Oh, they could. Gee, Absolutely. I mean, the la- my last time playing in a, it was a, a, to nine points. I played in Hong Kong yeah. and uh, it was just, just, it was just like a, one of these exchanges. We brought a team there and we played against yeah. their team. And uh, I got on court against the guy. We're about the same level. And we, I mean, all the other matches had fit. We had started before most of the matches. Yeah, and then we were still on court uh, when the other matches had finished and everyone had gotten a shower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they could barely walk after. But th- 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 I'm sure that's uh, maybe you were fitter than I was. Uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of the name of the game back then. You know, you had to be fit to play squash, and um, and I understand why they changed the the scoring. It it makes it a uh, more exciting game. They changed the tin and what have you. So I got through the first round of the World Championships, and you know, play, and I can't remember who I beat in the first round, but. The next round was against um, the South African number one, Roland Watson. You know, he was, and I, I beat him. I beat him three nil. Wow! And this was wow. a, this was a big turn up for the book. The next match was against our own number one, John Easter. Um, oh, okay, well, he's the big big fella, right? He, yeah, he's the big guy. Big I mean, fella. I sadly, saw a picture of him the other day on uh, yeah. Squash Stories, and uh, yeah, sadly, I mean, he died. He died some years ago, which is really sad. But uh, nice guy, great guy. I played him and beat him. You know, I was like, whoa, okay. And then I was through to the uh, semifinals to play the Australian number amateur number two, uh, Dave Wright, and beat him 3-1 in the semifinals. So you get the, yourself uh, to the final. Of the, the so world I get myself to the final. As a, as a qualifier, I'm through this, the, the finals of the World Championship. I come up against Cam Nancaro, another okay. left-hander. I mean, <laughs> yeah. big six foot, six foot two or three Cam Nancaro. And the Nancaro pedigree. Yeah, and it was like, you know, I mean, everybody's rooting for me, you know, as the underdog, people were rooting for me, but he's, he was just too good, you know, he was just too good on the day, and, yeah. he, and he, he, he really he got stuck in me, beat me 3-0, but that kind of sort of set my career uh, alight, and I'm just going to take a step back. Before I went out to South Africa, I went into a, I went into a sort of sports shop, boy scout shop, to get to get uh, some little Union Jacks to sew on my, sew on my um, 
sewing my gear because you did you weren't given the gear by your association you just took your own gear and i was really right. proud to be playing yeah. for britain so yeah. i got these little yeah. union jacks and sewed them on my um, sleeve you know right but the guy yeah. in the shop was like so what do you want these for why do you need these and i'm like well i'm going to be playing for, i'm going to be playing for great britain in the world uh, squash world team championships blah, blah, blah. and he's like really ah okay and this guy subsequently sold his business and became he he, he became the um the Patrick Sports Shoes distributor in Britain. Okay. And um, and so I came back. Yeah, they were they were Australia. big. Uh, they used they to make were, quality squash shoes. They they were. Well, I'm telling you the story about the squash shoes, Jerry, because it's a very fascinating story. So, yeah. I come back from um, playing the World Championships, and I, I just bought this little sort of terraced house. I had a I had a teacher sharing, you know, renting from me. And he was a teacher in a school opposite the warehouse of Patrick Shoes. And he used to go across and sort of get the seconds, the ones that weren't, you know, weren't, had, you know, had stitching loose and stuff like that. He'd get yeah. And the guy, the guy said to him, so uh, what, what do you, you know, where do you live? He said, oh, I'm living with this guy, Brian Patterson, a squash player. And he's like, oh, Brian Patterson. And he'd asked me my name when I was in the shop. Right. And this, and he never forgets a name, this guy. And he's like, Brian Patterson. He's oh, tell Brian I want to talk to him. So this guy came back and said, hey, you know, I've been at the Patrick's, Mr. Plater, who owns the company, said he'd love to talk to you. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. All I wanted to do was play squash, you know? <laughs> and after about three or four times of this guy saying, look, I've been in again. Can you please go and talk to Ev Plater about, you know, I don't know what he wants to see you about. So I go to see Ev Plater and he's like, I remember you. You came in for the little Union Jacks. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I remember you. He said, look, he's, and he said, we are developing a squash shoe. I want you to be on board to help us test them, to put them through the ringer. If you've got any sort of um, design changes that you might think we could do, you're going to be on board with us. And we went, they were being made in France at the time. And we went back and forth to France for months to get yeah. these shoes yeah. right. And we finally got them right. And these were the first shoes really made for squash, specifically for squash. Mm. And he's like, great. He said, you know what? Um, He's like, well, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to just, I don't want to pay you a certain amount of money. Let's say I don't want to pay you in those days, five grand, 10 grand. He said, I don't want to pay you 10 grand because the, the shoes might bomb and he'd be out of money. He said, but at the same time, I don't want to pay you a little bit and the shoes do really well and you don't make as much as you should be. He said, I'm going to give you royalties for every pair of shoes sold. You get one pound 50. I'm like, so yeah, it no, sounds like that me. Michael Jordan, uh, same deal he got. A little bit, you know, so I'm like, and all I really wanted to do was play squash. I'm like, yeah, 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 shake. We shook hands. He was a, you know, he was a typical British gent. Shake, yeah. your handshake is your bond. Yeah, yeah. We shook hands. And he said, oh, he said, also, you know, we're going to put your name on the, on the box. We're going to call him the Brian Patterson squash shoe. So my name was on the box. And um, I remember, you know, I'd, I'd be off training and playing and what have you. And I would go, I'd go back to the warehouse to get some gear and some bags and stuff like this. And one day he said to me, oh, I owe you some money. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not going to turn money down. So I think yeah. I said, oh, well, well, thank you very much, Ev. And he wrote a check and he folded it up and he gave it to me. Well, I'm not going to open it up in front of him. So I put it in my uh, pocket, my short pockets and sort of went off. And I was a couple of days later, I was going to put these shorts into the wash. And I'm like, oh, shit, the check. I've got to get that check. Hell, oh, let me get it out. And I yeah. get it out and I yeah. open it up. I open the check and I'm like, oh, he's made a mistake. There's, there's too many zeros on this. Uh, he's definitely made a mistake. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah. I thought, I've got to go back and tell him, this is wrong. It's definitely wrong. And I go back and I go in to see Ev. I said, Ev, look, I think, I think you made a mistake on this check, Ev. It's, um, 
it, it's a lot of money. He said, you know, I said, I think you've made a mistake. He said, no, 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 no. We've sold that number of shoes and you're on one pound 50 or whatever it was. He said, that's what, that's your money. And it was, it was in the thousands of pounds wow. for the seventies. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, Oh. And I think another part of that story goes that I was training and playing with Jonah at the time. And I, you know, we, we trained and played. And I, I think if I remember rightly, he sort of sat, we were sitting in the changing rooms one day and he just happened to say to me, so, um, are you on royalties? And I'm like, yeah. And that was it. Because I think he, because I think, I believe he had just signed with Adidas on a straight fee, you know? So I think he was a little bit pissed. Yeah, I think yeah, he yeah. Was, He's probably going to sue me for this, but I think he was a little bit pissed that I was on royalties. But I think, you know, by the end of the year, he renegotiated with Adidas to get, I think he got his royalties, you know, from them. Right. But, he, but at the time, it was like, dude, I'm making more money than Jonah Barrington from, from shoe sales. Yeah, he must he must have been upset because he, he sort of recruited you into the into the pro yeah. game. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> but but they were great shoes. My only regret oh, yeah. about those. Well, I remember Patrick. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what shoes. happened, but even you know, when I was a junior uh, back in yeah. the mid eighties, uh, late eighties, I think they were still still around yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, I think um, my one regret is I didn't keep a box with my name on Jerry. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> didn't keep one. <laughs> well, if anyone's listening and they might, you know, any collectors yeah, anyway. out there, uh, get in touch with uh, with Brian. But, uh, you know, Please. speaking of Jonah, I mean, uh, obviously a uh, legend uh, of the game, one of the greatest to ever play the game. Um, yeah. Speak to what it was like to, you know, have him uh, at your side. I mean, obviously you, you got through the qualifying there in, in the world uh, championships yeah, yeah. on through to the final and you were still in one piece. Uh, some of that might, must have to do with maybe even just sort of training a, a bit with Jonah. He, he's yeah. been notorious for, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, for his training and uh, you know, how, how fit and uh, extreme that, that could be. So uh, what was yeah. it like uh, uh, training and, and having Joan at your side? Well, I mean, he was—he's—he's a—he's a—he's a terrific person. He's—he's he's, so—he's so into the game of squash. You know, he—I'm he, sure he would convince anybody who'd never played the game to go play the game. You know, I mean, he's—he's—he's mm. he's a, he's a, he's a master of the of the sport. He's very—he's um, very articulate about about speaking about the sport, and I think I was very fortunate. To go back, just to take a step back to the um, the Drysdale final that I won, it was at the RAC club in London, and I think Nasrullah Khan, I think it was Nasrullah, was 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 the coach there, and at this and, and he was coaching. I, I believe Jonah was being coached by by Nas Khan at the time down in London, and I, I've heard a story, and I'm, this might just be gossip, but I've heard a story that Nasrullah Khan. Um, I think he might have been the guy that ref the final, but I also think during the week as we played it, I think he sort of said to Jonah, you should come watch this kid play because he's, you know, he's gritty. He doesn't give up. He's, he's a bit like you, you know, he's, he's in your sort of mold, Jonah. He's going to keep the ball going and blah, blah, blah. And I, and I, yeah. I don't know whether Jonah watched the final, but I think Naz did say to him, you should come and watch this kid play. Um, so there was a connection there right from way, way back, you know, and then I moved to the Midlands, met Jonah again, and trained and played with him. I mean, it was always brutal. There was never anything easy about the training and playing. Yeah. And you, I mean, you may have heard of Bomber Harris, Jonah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Jonah took us. Jonah recommended that myself. I think it was myself, Peter Vero, a guy called Graham Bouchel, 
a badminton player and Jonah would go to Bomber for a weekend. And the first weekend that we were down in Innsworth, RAF Innsworth near in Gloucestershire, I think it is, um, the first weekend, I mean, it was brutal. I mean, I don't think... I don't think people should be training the way we trained back then because I don't think we really realized what we were doing. It was just, you're going to get fit. Yeah. And it, yeah. if you looked at the ways we were doing it, it's well, like... Well, um, well, give, give us a little anecdote, uh, sort of what... Uh, I mean... What, what the, nightmares do you have of that training? Well, I mean, certainly the nightmare, of the telegraph pole nightmare, you know, you had to hold the... There was four of you with a pole above your head. Oh, yeah. Running, running around the base, and it's a long way around the base, and you're talking miles here, yeah. running around with the base with the pole. But not only are you running around it, and, Joan, and, and Bomber would be jogging by the side, but he's little, he always had that little, <laughs> had this little laugh. Of, <laughs> you enjoying this, boys? <laughs> yeah. He always had this freaking laugh, which kind of, you know, it was funny, but at the same time, it pissed you off. He had this pole and, and he said, when I say go, the person at the back lets go. So the three of you then, and you have to move the pole forward so that they ran from the back to the front. Yeah. And you carry, you know, so you're always sort of wow. relaying up. I mean, that run, running along the, um, the air raid shelters, they had these like, I would say, oh, nearly 150 uh, yards long air raid shelters, but really steep to get up. I mean, it, it, that's 10 feet high and you had to clamber up these, run along, drop down, up the next one, just stuff, stuff like that. And, and in, the, in, the, um, in the gym they had there, I mean, all these brutal shuttle runs and things like that. I mean, it's just brutal. I mean, I'm, I, I ne will never forget going back to London, waking up the next morning and wondering, how the hell am I going to get out of bed? Oh, I can't, you know, you couldn't move any muscle. How am I going to get out of bed here? This is crazy. I can't. You know, you sort of fall onto the floor and then you try and get up. Yeah. And with, you know, and walking up up and down stairs was like a nightmare. You know, yeah, it yeah. took you about four or five days and then you're going to go back to him again the next weekend. It's like, oh God, am I going to go back there? This is crazy. But that, I mean, that's how you feel after, I mean, these days especially, but for me, but after like an, ex, an extremely difficult match, yeah, how you yeah. feel the next day. So yeah. I guess that prepared you for the, the most extreme uh, match it, that you would ever uh, have to encounter, right? It, it did. I mean, it really did. I mean, we stayed in, we stayed in these, uh, in the, on the barracks, and these they were, hold, they were holding um, quarters for, for uh, soldiers that had been abroad, were coming back to Britain. They'd go into these holding quarters, and then they'd move on to wherever they were going next. And we stayed in there, and we were on the, we were on the second floor. And I mean, I'll never forget, you know, you, you heard Bomber before you saw him. You know, he would come <laughs> through the door down below and he'd go, okay, boys, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> you better be up. You better, and you'd hear this, this, this laughing voice coming up the stairs to get you, you know, to get you to, you know, to start the day. And it, these were brutal sessions. I mean, yeah. it was nothing to do a two, two and a half hour session, have a little bit of lunch, a little bit of a lie down and then go back and do another two and a half hour session in the afternoon and then, and then a little bit of a break and then go play. And then go play. Three hours. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was, we were doing something like, I don't know, six, seven hours on a Saturday for sure. We did some on the Friday night, then all day Saturday and then half a day Sunday. And then you'd try to get home. You know, you'd try to stay awake driving home to wherever you were. Right it was, on. it was tough. And Jonah introduced us to that. Right, and he, um, and he was he thrived in that uh, environment. Oh, Jonah loved it. Yeah, I mean, he yeah. really did love that, and it, and it was brutal. Um, it was tough, but those those were those were tough days. I mean, running through the cornfields as well. He, you know, we'd we'd start there early, 
um, April time and over the summer to train. He'd run through the cornfield. And the first year we were there, he'd, he'd be like, yeah, how's the, how's the running through the cornfield, boys? And we're like, yeah, it's all right, Bum. It's good, it's good. He said, yeah, wait till it gets up to your chest and then you got to run through it. You know, and sure enough, you know, <laughs> by the time, the just before harvest with the wheat up to here, running through this cornfield wasn't so fun wow. anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, dude. That's all, that's all real character building stuff that, that, that you can sort of tap into uh, yeah. when things get yeah. tough on the court, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, you know, that, that was a huge part of the game back then. Yeah. I mean, it's still, fitness is still part of the game, but, um, oh man, yeah, I'll never forget those training sessions with Bomber. Um, yeah. And, there were, and there were, of course, you know, if, if there was any little competition in there, the four of us, we were going to compete against each other. You know, we didn't want to lose to the, the guys that were there. Well, I guess so Jonah would have, uh, would have assembled a group of guys like-minded, like yourself, like him. And then when it gets mm. competitive like, like that, it would be truly... <laughs> Truly competitive. Like none, I'm not sure about the other guys, but it doesn't sound like you were going to give up. No, no. And, and, and the four of us, we were all competitive guys. I mean, one of the guys came, I think he was something like a banker, but he just loved training. He played a little bit of squash and he wanted to get fit. And he came, he drove down on a Friday having you know, sat in the bank all week and he just loved it. And he said, this is, I love this more than I love my job. You know, this yeah. is great. And um, he, he became a decent, decent squash player. He had asthma. And I swear to God, the training helped his asthma tremendously. I mean, I think by the end of the two or three years he was there, he's like his asthma was almost gone. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, not half, hmm. not half. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Brian. I mean, those days sound like. I mean, you know, I, I'd love to. Uh, I, I, I probably wouldn't survive what what you guys went through, but it just sounds like something that I'd love to try to do. I mean, we did we did it our own way. We had some tough training sessions yeah. back in my day, and we I miss those times. But uh, mm. but anyway, you uh, you did find you now you're obviously you're a coach. How did that um, evolve, uh, or how did you parlay, and when did you parlay your squash playing into your your coaching uh, the coaching side? <laughs> I, I, you know, back in the day, it was, and I think most most players did this back in the day. You know, most players either were contracted to a club, you know, with a retainer and, and lesson yeah. fees, and then they would go off and play weekends. I remember, I remember I did, I was, I was lucky, fortunate because of the Patrick connection and, and the, um, the royalties that I was getting. I mean, that allowed me to do a lot of things that other, other players possibly couldn't do. So I could train and play every day. Um, but I remember doing, I remember I always did at least one night a week coaching. Um, and right. it was, I, I remember the middle, when I lived in the Midlands, it was a, it was a Monday night. I, you know, you'd maybe trained and played, played over the weekend or been in a competition over the weekend, come back. I'd go to uh, Wolverhampton Lawn Tennis and Squash Club and do like three or four hours there on a, on a, on a Monday evening. And they were, you know, they were pretty happy to have me along. Um, so that, that brought you in some revenues, but it, it, it must've been, it was tough for all the pros back then because, you know, you, you could go and play a tournament, you could win it, but you still were out of pocket because you just, you know, you weren't covering yeah, your, your, yeah. Your, 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 your travel expenses and, and, uh, hotels, et cetera. So it was, it was tough back then. So most of the coaches, um, coached and played at that, at that point in time. Right. Um, that, that's really what would happen. No, um, and from, no. I, so I, I, I was, I was doing that. Um, I met this guy, Jim Mason, great guy. I mean, God rest his soul, he, he died a few years ago, but he was like, um, he was a big proponent of getting people to play the game in Canada. Mm, and, and okay, I, yeah, I, I was going to ask you about, the, about your, your move uh, to North America. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So we thought, I mean, I met Jim Maitland at a tournament in England. I can't remember the name of the club, the Lambton Club, I think it was. I just played, got to the bar to get a shandy, sat down, and Jim was sitting next to me. And Jim was a very gregarious guy. And he just turned to me and said, hi, my name's Jim Mason. Uh, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm Brian Patterson. How are you? And we got chatting. He was, he'd been, he'd come over from Canada to watch the squash. I think he maybe used to bring kids over to tournaments as well, but he'd come to watch the squash and we sat and chatted. And he was like, look, if you ever want to come to Canada, let me know. I'll set up a, I'll set up a tour for you. And I'm like, that sounds great. That sounds great. So I think I got in touch with Jim and said, yeah, you know, yeah, it'd be great. I'd love to take you up on your offer. And he said, well, I can set you up. If you bring a training partner, somebody to play, I'll set you up with clubs where you can do exhibition matches and maybe a little bit of coaching at each of these clubs. And, uh, and that's what happened. But I'll never, I'll never forget my first visit to Canada because I'd <laughs> never been to North America. I think Hopefully it wasn't in the winter. It was. It was, <laughs> Jerry. It was, in the, it was in the winter. And I did you not drop know an anything. Don't, don't worry. <laughs> I didn't know anything about your winters made back then. I really didn't. I came across in this little leather jacket, you know, and you get in the plane. It's nice. They open the doors and you start to go out and then you hit the door and you think, oh, oh, my God, what is this? <laughs> and it was freezing cold. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? This where, is... uh, where, where, where were you? Uh, was it? Uh... We, we flew into Toronto. And uh, Toronto, Jim, well. I mean, Jim, Jim Mason was great. He, he, he gave us his car. He, um, he made sure that we were looked after each of the clubs we went to play at. Um, I think I was there for about three weeks. And literally every third day, we would we'd travel to another club, to, to give an exhibition match, do a little bit of coaching, and then move on to the next club. And um, uh, that was my that was my introduction to um, Canada. And then I came in that summer to uh, coach. He got me set up at the uh, uh, the Rideau Club in uh, Ottawa. Okay, the Rideau, yeah, Rideau Club. The Rideau, okay. yeah. And that's where I met Renee. I mean, right. uh, Renee, okay. Renee will tell you the story. Like, I was there. Renee Denis. Renee Denis, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we, I was there. And we were setting up, it was the summer, we were setting up some, it was a camp and we were setting up the groups and it was like, you know, those who's played squash, yeah, you're over there. If you haven't played squash, you're there. And of course, Rene hadn't played squash, although he had played tennis and he was moved over there. And I, I, so I took the squash playing uh, group and I can't remember who was with me. They took the non-squash playing group and like within sort of 20 minutes, Rene wanders back over to me and says, um, oh, uh, the coach says, I've got to come to you. He said, I'm too good for that group over there. I said, but, but you haven't played squash. He said, no, no, I played a bit of tennis though. I said, oh, okay. And yeah. so he joined yeah. in and you could see that this guy was going to be, a, you know, could be a good squash player. And um, he, 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 he very quickly became a very good, uh, very good player and a, and, and a very good coach as well. Um, yeah. I mean, well, he's I, known, I, I mean, I, that's how obviously I know Rene because he, he yeah. traveled across Canada as a, as a coach and we, cross paths all, all the all the time uh, yeah. over those years but um yeah. yeah and then you uh so you you stayed in canada but uh, then you came back i more. stayed i stayed in i i, I was at the reader club for the first year in the yeah. summer the second summer i came well i came back for the winter again again in okay. my small jacket forgetting the cold you came my right. small jacket oh yeah geez yeah i forgot about this <laughs> And then came in the summer and was I worked at the um, Ottawa Athletic Club, the okay. big club. Yeah, yeah. There. Uh, the tradition, guy, I, lots of squash tradition there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I coached there for the whole of the summer and, you know, did some traveling and exhibition matches, and things, but coached there the whole of the summer. I, th I believe the guy that owned it was a guy called Saul, Saul Shabinsky. 
at the time, and he was a big uh, media mogul. I think he had the papers and some of the radio stations. And he, I'll never forget this, he um, he called me into his office one day. He said, we want you to be the pro here. We, we, we want you to be the head pro. I'm like, dude, I, I want to play squash. He said, no, 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 we want you to be the pro. He said, um, and again, this is the 70s, and I, I can't remember the figure, but he said, no, 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 I'm going to pay you a retainer of – I, you know, somewhere around about the 40,000, which was high in those great, days, yeah. well, 40 thing, yeah. grand. And you'll get your coaching lessons on top. I said, no, no, no I want to play squash. I want to see how good I can become a squash. He said, I've just offered you 40 grand. I said, yeah, but I want to play squash, you know? And he couldn't understand. And I didn't take it. You know, like, no, I want to play the squash. I want to play the circuit. And I think he just could not understand why I wouldn't take this <laughs> offer, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think I came back the next, I coached there for a couple of years, came back the next year, and he was still like, I want you to be the pro here. I'm offering you this money. Are you going to, and I'm like, no, no, I want to play squash. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I, I don't think it him. probably became a joke for him, did it? I think, I, well, I don't know whether, I think he definitely wanted me to be the coach there, but yeah, I just, yeah. I just wanted to, play a lot more years of squash. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you were still young and uh, yeah. back, you know, when, yeah. when you're playing, you, you, you want to play. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I came to Canada from like 74 through to about 78, 79. Um, and then <clears throat> it was funny. I'll never, I, I think, obviously, I was getting towards the end of my career. And um, Ev played as a guy who owned Patrick UK. I'll never forget. It was about end of 79, 80. He, he called me in one day, he said, um, and it was quite interesting. He's like, well, you know, every every sportsman comes to the end of their sort of sporting and playing career. And I'm like, I could see where this is going. I'm like, uh, yeah, they do. They do. Have. Yeah, they do. He said, well, um, you know, I, I'm going to pay you a fixed fee for the shoes now rather than royalties, you know, because you, you are obviously coming to the end of your career. Um and, and he said, that's just how it has to be now. So I'm like, I was, I was, I was like, hey, I'd had some great years with him, uh, some great, you know, way huge pay from him. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I understand that. That's no problem. But then you start thinking, like, what am I doing? What's my next? Where am I going from here now? Yeah, and yeah. Um, um, met, met, the, met, the, met, the, met the manager of Portsmouth Squash Club. And um, they offered me a job there and moved out to Portsmouth uh, to coach at the Portsmouth Squash Club which was, uh, in, I mean, this was the 79, 80. Okay. And, um, Portsmouth, is that a, a county or a, one? It's a, a, it's a city, city, city? On, city on the city on the coast of, uh, south coast of England. Okay. Um, and it's a, it's a big, a big um, Navy area. Right on. Okay. The dock, dockyards, et cetera, et cetera. But this, this club was like, this club had 13 courts back then. 13. Oh. And it, 13, and so it was a big club, you know, a really big club. So was and, it connected um, with the uh, the naval base? Or it, the... it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Okay. It was it, it was it was built privately by a guy who loved the game of squash mm. and wanted to introduce sort of middle income. It's interesting how this sort of is evolving into what I was thinking about. He wanted just the middle income guys to play. He didn't want it to be an expensive game, so he built this club. And I think, you know, I knew Richard. I got to know Richard very well, and he actually, he was a lawyer, he financed the club. You know, he would make sure if it lost money, he put more money in. He, he, he didn't want to raise the fees so that people found it too expensive to play. And that's why it was a 13-court complex where loads of people were playing the game of squash. And it was great. You know, great, great uh, junior section, 
great adult section, some good teams. I put together some teams that won the national championships. Um, So we had had a really good time there. We won the women's championships. Um, Martine Lemoyne, I don't know whether you remember Martine. She She came down. She um, came. She she was world champion. Uh, Yeah, she was. She came to Portsmouth. She came down to Portsmouth for four years to be coached by me. She was up in the Midlands. And Nottingham, I think she was in the same club as Lisa Roby at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think she just felt she needed to get away from her. So she came down and stayed at Portsmouth for four or five years. And um, she she won, she became world champion. She never won the British Open. She got to the final, I'm, I want to say certainly two times. I'm not sure she didn't get to the final three times, but she always came up against Susan Devoy. Oh. Right, right. And you know, I was there. I was there for the finals. It'd be like for a, uh, coming up against Nicole David during her era. Yeah, yeah. But they were close. They, I mean, yeah. the, the the match, the two finals that she played against her. I think it was two. Could have been three. It was all. It was three two. I mean, close, close five setters. Yeah. And it, it kind of sort of it kind of broke. I mean, she was devastated that she couldn't quite beat her. Kind of broke my heart that I just couldn't quite, for some reason or other, couldn't quite get her through that hump of getting a win against it. But then she yeah. went on to win the world world title as well, which right. was kind of nice. That's awesome. Great. So that gave I, I, you... Another, another, actually, another, another girl who came to um, Portsmouth mm-hmm. and who's now in in, uh, in Canada, I think she's still in Ottawa, Heather Wallace. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Canadian, she, Canadian she, uh, national yeah, she champion came, many, many she, times over, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, she was the Scottish number one and she came down to Portsmouth as well and trained and played there. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to think how... I think she got number she was in the top eight in the world yeah. top eight maybe top six you know we had a good little squad going down there it was, it was great. Well, she laid the groundwork for for canadian women that's for sure yeah uh, yeah the, you yeah know? and uh we've yeah. we've produced quite a few uh solid women over the years and our women even nowadays are, are doing quite well so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's uh, so i moved and i moved into you know moved out to portsmouth into into training and playing there um, at the end of the at the end of the eighties, you know, squash was taking a bit of a dive. Um, Portsmouth Squash Club was being sold, so I moved across. I moved not very far away to a town called Leon Solent, which had a members club, six okay. courts, and I was there for three years. Um, but in the three years I was there, a, a, a friend of mine who went to the same school as me, but not at the same time, was a, was a coach at a college in uh, in the U.S. Um, Amherst College. Okay. Yeah. And he got me to go and do, and I didn't realize what was going on. This is the funny thing about it. He got me to go and um, do some summer camps there, like in 91 and right. 92. He got me to go and do some camps well, this there. Was, uh, he, if you don't mind, this was sort of mm-hmm. when the varsity game was just sort of, I mean, it was, it's always been there, don't get me wrong, but it just mm-hmm. sort of started to, uh, to grow. Uh, I think this right was around when that, squash. Yeah, this was when squash in the States was just starting to change from the hardball to the softball. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, there's a guy, I'll, I'll never remember this guy, there's a guy called, we, uh, City Squash used the courts at Fordham University. Mm-hmm. There's a guy that went there called Bill Andrus, who came and lived with me for six months in the 70s. He played on the varsity team for, for um, Fordham when it was the hardball game. But in the, but like in the early, this, he came to me about 75 in, in England. Mm-hmm. He could see the game was changing and going to change from the, from the hardball. And this was 20 years before it did. He could see right. it was going to change. Right. So he came over to, over to Britain, to England, to train and play and play some tournaments. There's a, little, there's a funny little story about him. We, he you know, met Jonah, trained with Jonah. And uh, he went out, with, he went out with a, on, for a run with Jonah. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
and um, Jonah obviously knew the route was taking them around this route, and they were running together. You know, it was like you know we're going to run together, and about about three quarters of the way around the route, Bill realised where he was. Bill Andrus realised where he was, and he knew where the club was. So he's like, right, I'm off. So he like <laughs> he, he ran off from Jonah. You know, ran off from Jonah. I mean, Jonah will tell you the story. Jonah's like, what the hell? What's he doing? So, he, you know, after he, he, oh, he wants to compete. Okay. So he ran up, he ran after him and sort of like beats him into the club. Yeah. And then Bill gets into the club and he sort of gets hold of Bill. You want to race, mate? You tell me you want to race. Just don't ever do that again. And he had Bill <laughs> up against the wall, you know. And he's quite right. You know, if you want to race, let's make it a race. But don't just do it without me knowing. Yeah, yeah don't take so, it off on me. Yeah. So that was, that was just a little funny aside from Bill Andrews. But anyways, the yeah. game was changing. But this guy got me out to do some camps in 91. Um, and unbeknownst to me, there were, there were board members from a, a, a club called the Heights Casino in of Brooklyn course, yeah. who, were, who were on the adult camps. And there were some kids from the Heights Casino on the junior camps. And I, I swear to God, they were che- he, he, he got them there to check me out to see what I was like as a coach. Right. And I did right. that for two years. And then he said to me, oh, the job's coming up at Brooklyn Heights, the Heights Casino. You should apply for it. And I was at Lee and I'm like, yeah, well, and he said, by the way, they, you know, they'll pay your airfare, they'll look after you for a week. I'm like, oh, week in New York? I'll take that. There you go. Yeah. So I flew out to New York, which was great. They looked after me, they hosted me really well, wined and dined, did a lot of coaching. You know, yeah. it wasn't for free, like they had me on court a lot of the time. Well, just, you know, just to put that into context, too, I mean, the Heights Casino is the Heights Casino. I mean, that, that's a, uh, you know, high end, uh, you know, New York. Uh, squash facility uh, amongst other things yeah and and, 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 it, and it's always had a, a fantastic junior program yeah and and then peter 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 robson knew that he'd, he'd worked there and he knew that i was good with kids and that's why he got me to go so i go i have my week out there i come back to lee and your people are like so how was it oh it was great it's great and i was like i like i forget all about it i'm like ah oh, great lee great let's get into the coaching at lee and about four months later I get this letter, dear Brian, you know, we would like to offer you the position as director of squash at the Heights Casino. And I had, I mean, I had, I hadn't really seen that coming. I was just like, it's a great week in New York. I'm going to take the week, come back, get this letter. I'm like, holy shit, crap, what? Crap. Then I, but then I started to think, I started to think about it and I knew the game was, you know, the game was changing when I was there. Yeah. I was I was coaching on their narrow courts, their American courts. Yeah. But they were, you know, they were explaining to me, we're going well, to build these. Just to say, I mean, when I grew up, I grew up playing on the narrow courts in uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's where I yeah. played my junior squash. But we played softball on the yeah. narrow courts. Yeah. Then we'd, we'd end up playing in the Nationals, which would always be in, in Toronto or yeah. uh, out Calgary or wherever. We'd be playing on a proper softball court. Yeah. So we'd be yeah. screwed. Yeah, yeah, you got yeah, you got screwed by that two and a half feet all the time. Yeah. Um. So so they offered me the job. So I I sort of saw I thought started thinking about. It. I thought you know what, this is an interesting time to go to the states. Seventy. What was it? Ninety three. Ninety three. Yeah. And so I so I accepted the job. Went flew over there, and uh, became the director of squash at the Heights Casino. And I got there, and they still didn't have any courts. The courts were there, the, you know, the outline of the courts were there, but there was no glass back on one of them. Right. The other one was a side glass back, which no, I'm like, well, why am I here? I can't, I can't do any, I said, no, don't worry, don't worry. You know, these courts are going to be built. They're going to be finished. You're going to be working, you know, hard with, the, with, the, 
or the other group of coaches. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there was myself and three other assistant coaches at this program because it was huge. Um, so I was there, I was there from, uh, 93 to 2000. Had a great time. I mean, yeah. you know, we didn't. Well, if you don't mind, uh, Brian, I, I want to talk to you about that time because the Heights Casino during, I, I guess, as soon as uh, the courts got built, it, it just uh, hit the ground running. Um, I, I mean, one of the one of my best memories as a squash enthusiast, not as a player, was when Jonathan Power won the uh, the U.S. or the the tournament of champions at the uh, I think it was the Heights Casino, Heights Casino in yeah. 1996. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. would have been there as the the head pro. So, do you remember that uh, that event? I do. I do yeah. remember that. I mean, I, mean, I know, can't that, remember. that was groundbreaking for for North America, not just Canada, but for North America squash to see, you know, basically the first ever uh, person from North America, male from North America, to, to get to world number one. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. I mean, I remember that. I, I'm, I'm trying to think why they. I think. John Nimick had a, had a venue in Manhattan, and for some reason it fell through that year. So they came to the Heights Casino and said, listen, is there any way we could put the all-glass court up in your club? And we have this, there was two tennis courts, one on the lower deck and one on the, on the upper deck. And the lower deck one was kind of perfect for putting the court in because it had a, a sort of an upstairs gallery that was, you could look down on it. Yeah. You, took the, you, took the, you took the court away, uh, put the bleachers in, and it was it was actually I thought I was a sh I was sad that they didn't bring it back again ever because I thought it was a great venue I really thought it was a great venue you got you got about I would say you almost got the same number of people in there that you do at Grand Central um, but yeah I remember that I remember that big time because it was you know you walked into the club you came around the sort of back of the bar and there in front of you was the squash court well it was the tennis court but it was no longer there it was the all glass court there and I mean that was that was just an amazing sight and it was a fantastic thing for the heights casino to do as well you know to, to host this tournament of champions and then to top it all as you say to then watch jonathan power win <laughs> win the title yeah was great yeah. you know it was really great because awesome. you know yeah. although he's although he's from canada i think a lot of people from the, the states were like great you know well, he, he, he has that new york uh, uh mentality right it's, it's like it's, he, it's, he's brash <laughs> he's got an attitude yeah. You know, yeah. he's kind of cool. Uh, yeah. He doesn't really yeah, care what other people think. Uh, no, he doesn't give a toss. He does not give a toss. And he, and he yeah. never has and never should. He's a great no. guy. Oh, absolutely. Fun guy. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that, that was a fantastic event. I now, mean, yeah. I'm going to tell you one little story about his brother. Please, uh, Ian. Yeah, yeah Ian. Because I, I, I run camps. I, I'm st I would... I've been running camps since 1986 here in, here in England, and uh, we're still doing them. We would have been doing them this year, but of course, coronavirus right. had knocked it out. But Ian, who, who again is another character, kind of mm -hmm. off the wall guy, you know, different from Jonathan and what have you. But he came he came one year to work on the camps at uh, Leon. I think I think it was Leon Solent. Yeah, it was Leon Solent. Came one year to work in the camps, and you know, he's a little bit he's a little bit sort of out in space. Uh, Ian, you know, <laughs> that's being very polite. I'll be yeah, polite. Yeah. I'll be polite. He's out in space. And he was working for us. And he said, like, you know, a couple of days. Yeah, great. He was, he was terrific. And then the third day, we're like, where's Ian? Where is he? <laughs> Where'd he go? Yeah. Didn't come in for the third day. And we're like, and the fourth day, we're like, so Ian, um, you know, what happened yesterday? He said, oh, oh, oh. I said, oh, I was out the night before. I think this, yeah, I'm, I'm this is just a vague memory. He was out the night before, and I think he slept outdoors that night. 
and then decided he'd like to have a look at the area. So just yeah. didn't, <laughs> he went walkabout. He went walkabout. Yeah, it was great. But that was typically in, you know, it was great. I mean, yeah. he, was a, he was a great guy. We had a lot oh, yeah. of fun with him on the camp. No, no, I mean, JP went, went through those moments when, back in his day, <laughs> I think, as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so I, so I, moved, I moved to the States. And um, I think within a couple, within a couple of years, with the first first year, first two years, there was a guy called Bill Broadbent who was on the U.S. Junior Committee, U.S. Squash Junior Committee, and um, he, uh, he he invited me to dinner one day into his home in Connecticut, along with a couple of other American pros, and literally sat down and said, "Right, you know what? What you were assistant sort of national coach in England." what do they do that we need to do here, you know? Right. right. Uh, junior wise. And I said, well, I think, you know, I think one of the first things that you should start to think about is organizing um, national squads, you know? Right. Because right. at, at the time they all sent it, they all sent a team to the under 19 championships, but it was like, they just get the four best guys together and for three or four months to train them, go to the championships. And then that was it, you know, till the next till two years time. So I said, I think you really need to have some national squads going where, you know, where you bring the best juniors together two or three times a season. Um, and you, and you, you have a, you know, a, a good bunch of coaches there to train and play them. And they were like, Oh, great. He said, and they were like, well, can you do that? I said, well, I think I could. Yeah. I think I can organize that. You know, yeah. I said, I, th- I can certainly find the courts. I can get the yeah. coaches. Yeah. And they were like, well, we'll take the pressure off you by, we will, find the kids we will we will get the top eight kids rather than you have to worry about what the parents are going to say you know why isn't my kid in there how come he got in how come he she didn't get in so i, I organized that and i had to, i had to run it i mean i had to i had to fund it so i had to charge the families a certain amount of money to come on these um on these squads but i started the squads off you know we did 13s 15s 17s 19s on different weekends so we we got that going um, I would say 74, 75, uh, 94, 95 down there, yeah. got the squads yeah. going. I mean, consequently. That's, that's right around when the U.S. started to make uh, some inroads. Like they, they yeah. you know, that would have been right around the Julian Illingsworth time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right around yeah. that, that period, there were several, you know, Chris Gordon, obviously, but before him, uh, some yeah. good players coming out of the U.S. starting to at that at that time. Yeah, there, there were. Um, so we got that going. And then... Um, I, they, I was appointed the uh, under-19 world team coach for the 2098, which were at Princeton. So we were all kind of like, uh, we, we're on our home soil. We want to travel, you know. Uh. <laughs> so we did that one. Yeah. And then um, and then the 2000 world championships were in Milan, Italy. So that was kind of cool. And we, we went over there. We finished. We finished. We finished the highest that the team had ever finished before, and we we beat. I remember, I remember this. We beat uh, New Zealand, which was a oh, big yeah. win that's for huge. the team. We beat them two one, and that was a huge, huge win. Um, and I think we finished that's something sort of like groundbreaking, this. isn't it? I mean, it was, this, this it was. means you know you're you know potentially in, in there. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was great. And then, of course, um, the the philosophy of U.S. squash is that you get you get two world championships as a coach, and then next person has a go. It's you know to open it up to right. as many coaches as possible. So I had done those two world championships. I'd also moved from the Heights Casino down to Philadelphia to a school, Chestnut Hill Academy, which okay. had six courts, and um, they had wanted to uh, open it up as a club. And they had a guy that's a year before me called Ben Desombre, a French guy, really good coach. He st- sort of started the club going and then he left. And uh, they, they, they sort of, 
they came after me to take the job there. So I took the job down there as the, as the, as the coach of the school teams and to run a club, uh, brought two or three coaches from England over, a little guy called Joe Russell, who's now in uh, Cleveland, Tina Ricks, who's in New York, Mike Jeffries, who came from uh, Zimbabwe. And we had a great little, for seven years, we had a great club, a very good, great atmosphere, great sort of family atmosphere. We, we made the uh, fees relatively cheap so people could afford to come and play there. Yeah. Um, and then one of the other things which I'm sort of kind of proud of, really, uh, legacy-wise, is I was coaching this kid, Parker Justy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll never forget his mother. His mother, she, I, I coached him and he was getting changed and I'd finished the night and we sat to, I sat talking to his mother and she said, so, well, so what happens in England then? You know, just like they had about the squads. She said, what happens in England for the schools? I said, oh, well, they have these uh, schools national championships. You know, they do them in areas and then they bring the top eight together for the... Um, yeah. For the finals, she said, oh, we got to do that here. I said, yeah, we could, you know? So she said, no, no. She, so she was actually the sort of, she was the, she pushed for this. She was like, we're going to do this, Brian. You and I are going to set this up. So we went to US Squash and said, look, we think you should be doing um, high school team championships. You know, we really think she should. And US Squash was like, oh, no, no, we don't want to do that. No, 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 no. No, don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. So, she, so she said, so before I know it, she says, I've got the venue. And she'd got this huge, I mean, typical American. She got this huge, massive club. You know, I mean, really big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is great. But she got the courts. She got the hotel booked. And she put the word around, all, you know, as many schools as she could. And that first, that first championship, there were six boys teams the right. first year. And we had a great, you know, two groups of three. And, and now around. Well, yeah. So this, so we're like, well, we're going to keep this going. The second year we had something like, I think we had something like maybe certainly over 12, maybe 16 teams. So we're like, whoa, this is great. And I said, I said, look, I think we, we've got to include the girls in this. We definitely mm. have to include the girls in this. So the third year we included the girls. And because it was starting to grow with the boys, I think we had about eight girls teams. So we had these two tournaments going. And then, of course, U.S. squash sort of like U.S. squash comes to uh, – comes to us and says, ah, you know what? I, I, you guys were right. We should be running this tournament. They had seen, they had seen this. Yes. The old yes. Akers. They'd seen the Akers. They'd seen all these kids playing like, dude, we should be running that and we can charge this and blah, blah, blah. A few blah. Benjamins yeah. in there. They saw a lot of Benjamins. Not a few. They saw a lot of Benjamins yeah. in there. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so we, we were like, dude, we told you. We told you you should be running this event and we were, we're happy for you to take it on. So they took it on and now it's the biggest it's yeah. the biggest yeah. championships in the world, literally, for, for uh, school sports in right. terms of squash. Yeah. And the, the nice thing about it was like about, I, I want to say about, about around about 2008, 2009, U.S. squash came back to, 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 to Melinda and myself and said, look, you guys started this. We would like, if you're okay with this, we'd like to name the Boys' Cup the Justy Cup, and we'd like to name the Girls' Cup the Patterson Cup. And so we were both like, yeah, you know, that's really nice. You know, we started this. We've set a legacy going here. We're happy with that. That's perfectly okay. You know, so uh, once a year, year we get the invite, you know, do you want to come and present the cups and things? And I've I've been just – Melinda's been there a couple of times with – you know, I've been along um, and we've presented the cups. And it's just kind of nice to say, you know, we started this. We're the guys that started this, you know. Yeah. 
it's great. I mean, that's I'm I'm really she's proud and I'm proud of what we did there because it's a huge tournament and the kids love it. Well, man, I mean, I mean, the move to uh, to North America obviously paid dividends for you, but also for uh, for our squash. Uh, yeah, yeah. In 2007, uh, you started with uh, City Squash, correct? I yes. I mean, that's another funny story. I mean, a friend of so, mine. It just 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 to me Sorry. piecing this all together. I mean, it really sounds like like what you'd done. You you'd sort of made you you developed the game in different areas where it had not where it could have where it needed or required development now this opportunity came along uh for you in, in brooklyn or sorry in the bronx with city squash so what were you thinking at that time because uh, obviously you, you're not the kind of guy who just takes on anything uh, you you give uh, give it some thought and there's got to be reason behind it i, I think if i go back uh, if i if i just go back to my i was uh, i went to college in york uh, York uh, St John's College York here in in, in uh, England to train as it was a as an academic college so you're training to be a teacher I I qualified as a teacher came out and was a was a PE teacher uh, for four years in a school in Walsall Walsall is one of the very it said it, at the time it was a very depressed inner city urban area in, right. in, in, around Birmingham and I taught inner city urban kids I mean. I would say 80% of the of the kids were like um, Indian Pakistan, you know, and struggling. But it was but it was a small school, uh, and I I again just loved those kids. You know, you got them because I guess they like you know they wanted to do some exercise. So you, as a PE teacher, it was relatively easy to get kids excited about what you were doing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I did four years there and uh, did some great trips with the kids. I remember, I remember taking a, a football team to my hometown of Berwick. And taking them around the taking them around the outskirts of Brightweather's fields, and literally these kids were like, "What is that? What's that there? What's that?" What? I'm like, oh, "Well, that's a cow," you know. And they'd never seen it. They'd yeah, never seen yeah. a cow. They'd never seen a cow in their lives, you know. And what's that over there? It's a sheep, you know. Um, so I think if you look back, maybe I was actually being being programmed back then to right. to, to come to the you know see things like this in the Bronx. Back then, yeah. yeah, yeah, But but to go back to the Bronx, I mean, a friend of mine. Coach at City Squash, Brian Mathias, great guy, great coach. And he'd coached there, and we were friends. He'd done some coaching on my camps. And he said, hey, there's a job coming up at City Squash. You should think about it because, you know, you don't have to worry about the manic, wealthy parents wondering, you know, why my, why is my kid not getting better? What are you doing? Can't you make my kid a better player, et cetera, et cetera? You know, mm -hmm. the, the manicness of, of – um, those those kids and families yeah, he said you, yeah. you'd be away from all that these kids parents hardly even know what they're doing he said you would love these kids and I, I sort of started to think about it in the meantime tim white who was the boss of who was who'd started city squash and was still the ceo there he started um sort of phoning me he'd bp come on take the job mate brian brian matthias so they, they were, you should tim, take tim was behind it and then uh, they were like this yeah, those yeah, two yeah. they were like this the bums and anyway, so I was I was on a I was on a uh, I taking some I was taking some kids to Spain to play the Spanish Open, then uh, Germany, and then Holland. And Tim actually brought one of the uh, Brian was there as well. He was bringing a very wealthy family's kid over, but he but he said one of the reasons he said I'm only going to take your kid if you pay for a city squash kid to come with me. So he 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 very smartly got another a city squash kid to go with him on his little tour, which was the same as ours. Right. And he was at the same venue. Well, Tim brought the kid over because Brian was already in Spain. So Tim brought the kid over 
and stayed for the week. And every day he was at me like, come on, BP, come on, take the jump, mate. Take the, you've got to take this jump. Come on, you, you love it, you love it. Take the jump. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, leave me alone. I'm with these kids. We're, you know, we're here yeah, playing the squash with you. Yeah. You know, yeah. And anyways, he left. And I'm like, oh, thank God for that. He's left. <laughs> and then the next day I'm on, I open up my emails. I'm like, oh, what's this? This is Tim Wine again. I said, what's he, you know, what is, I mean, so I open up the email and all he's got written in big letters across this email is, take the job, take the job. <laughs> I'm like, oh God, he won't even leave me alone. Yeah. But as I traveled around and talked to Brian about this the job, I'm like, you know what? This sounds like, sounds like a really interesting job and it could be mm. quite fulfilling to think you're going to help yeah. kids who would never have the chance of playing this game. Yeah. So in the end, well, I, that, I, I, that's, I, the, that's the, that's what I got out of it. I mean, after watching Bronx tale, it, it, I mean, obviously you're, you're really in, totally in, into, into that, uh, that gig. And, and uh, there's a lot of uh, the connection that you have with those kids is uh, something that um, it's just so, so awesome. Yeah, no, they, I mean, they're great, they're great, great, great kids. So, so I'm, I'm like, so I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking more and thinking, I think this could be a really good job. I like the idea of this. So I said to Tim, okay, um, let's talk about it. I'll, I'll take the job, but let's talk about it. Mm. So um, when we talked, I went back to the States and I met Tim and um, he knew at that time, this was a time when I was actually thinking maybe I could do six months in the States and go back to Europe and do camps and things and coach in Europe for six months, you know, just be a little bit, my family's over here. So it was like, I want to be a little bit close to my family, maybe, you know, and Tim was like, look, we met and Tim was like, look, I know you're looking for six months of the year off. He said, there's absolutely no way, no way we can give you six months of the year off. He said, but he said, I'll tell you what, and he, he stopped and you could see him thinking, I wonder how many months, I wonder how much time I can give this guy that will get him on board. He said, I'll tell you what, um, well, I'll give you three months. I'm like, so I put my hand out and shook hands. Dude, the minute I shook hands, he was like, oh, you shook hands too quickly. I said, what are you talking about? I'm just shaking that. He said, yeah, but you shook too quickly. He said, so what do you mean? He said, well, if I'd given you two months, I said, look, if you'd given me two months, I'd have shook your hand and taken the two months. But you just give me three months, mate. So I'll take the three months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. I actually get you, three months. You taught a year the young off. fellow a lesson. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I think he's. I think he's always regretted not going low rather than high. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but but you know what? It's nice. It's nice to have those three months off because a yeah. I do ca- I do camps over here. I I I hit up some sponsors of City Squash. To, to pay for kids to come over here and go on the camp. So I'm, I'm bringing some of our kids over here to, on the camps. They get a great experience in travel. It, it refreshes me and I go back ready to do the next nine months. You know, I'm like, right, let's go back. I'm missing the kids. So yeah. in a sense, it's, it's for me at my age, the three months is crucial. I mean, maybe two months would have been fine. Yeah. But just to, just, to sort of, just to get back home, so to speak, refresh yourself, do some camps here, see, see how other coaches are working and, and get our kids over here. Yes, and then go that, back. that little bit of separation too, uh, everyone yeah. appreciates everything that much more when you get back together. Yeah, um, yeah. Now I was going to ask you, I mean, I, like I mentioned earlier, I don't want to rehash everything that's already in there, but there were a couple of things that really uh, uh, I thought were really really interesting there's one part where you mentioned about being a surrogate father for for quite you know 
50% of the, the, the players on the team. I mean, that's got, you, you've got single parent backgrounds. You go into that a little bit. I mean, yeah. that, that's got to be something that you, that, that's highly emotional for you at times. So how, how have those moments impacted uh, you and, and the juniors that, um, well, that, I think, that you, you know, that, you, uh, that you're coaching? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, these, these kids, a lot, some, a lot of our kids come from tough backgrounds. You know, they just are single parent families. And most of them are the mothers that are looking after the kids. Um, and, you know, you, you, you never, you can never force yourself on a kid and say, Hey, you know, I want to be, I'm going to help you whenever you want. You did, but if, but if, but you let them know that we are there and that's not just me, but the staff as well, all the staff of all these programs are like, you're there for the kids, you know? So if there's any, thing they want to come and talk about, discuss that they might not want to talk about with their mother, father, whoever, um, then we're open, we're open to listening to them, you know? Um, yeah. and, and it's, you know, I think, I think just the, the squash aspect of it, they, they, there's a, there's a tendency, you know, that it's, it's things that they enjoy. So they feel comfortable, um, coming to talk to you about, you know, just some of the aspects of life, nothing, maybe not problems, but just what they're going through, you know? Um, and it's, and it's, you got, you just got to, you really got to listen to them. You have to sort of shut up, listen and, and see where they're coming from and, and what they're going through. And if you can help them at the end of the day, then you're going to do that. If it's, if they just want to get it out with you listening to them, then you're just going to listen to them so they can get it off their chest, so to speak. Um, so I, I would say most, you know, you, you can call me a surrogate father, but I think you could call all our staff surrogate, surrogate mothers and fathers. We're there for the kids yeah. and we're there yeah. to, to help and listen to them, you know? Um, yeah. And I think I mentioned one kid, and I love this kid dearly, um, Darius Campbell. I mean, you know, he walked, he went from shelter to shelter with his mother for, for yeah, a period of time. That, yeah. and, and that was, and he's such a great kid. I mean, he's such a great kid. You know, and you feel for those kids and you want to do the best you can for them, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it was also brought up by, by Tim uh, quite eloquently, the, um, you know, how his, I guess, I guess one of his goals is to make, you know, we all know squash in the U.S. especially is a, a, for the privileged uh, uh, and he wants to, uh, to, to uh, set out and, and, uh, give others the opportunity to, to play the game. And do you think uh, urban squash, uh, uh, city squash has, uh, has done a good job with that? Uh, uh, do, 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 do you think, uh, you know, it's making inroads in that, in that respect? Uh, I think, I think we, I think programs are doing a good job of producing good squash players. I, yeah. I think the what, I think what one of the, one of the, um, I was going to say problems is not a problem. One of the differences is that the, the wealthy kids have the wherewithal and they have the money to be able to employ, you know, personal coaches and, yeah. and, 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 it's, and they've raised, so because of that, they've raised the bar that, you know, the, the, the wealthy good squash players, families and the kids have raised the bar and the level of squash that they are now, uh, that they've now attained and, and we have not raised our bar as much as they've raised their bar, so the gaps right. becoming the gaps become a bit wider. I I I've, I don't you know I don't think we should criticise the 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 wealthy and the privileged for saying well you know this this isn't fair you know blah blah blah. What we've got to look at is we've got to look at how what do we need to do to be able to get 
to raise our bar more than they're raising their bar. So we're getting closer rather than further away. And I think right now- I was just gonna say, I mean, there there are so many, uh, a a lot of these private schools, uh, prep schools, I guess they call them. I mean, they've got so many, the squash facilities are just through the roof now. I guess guess through that, I I mean, if you can somehow support your your best juniors in the the urban uh, programs to, you know, academically as well, and get them uh, into these uh, prep schools through, I guess, a squash scholarship. Yeah, if, if yeah, the, yeah. I mean, that, that obviously that's something that's already being being done now, but but that seems to be a, a, yeah. a decent option. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. That's one of the things. Tim is. That was one of the things that Tim always wanted to do, and I think uh, I think he may have been he may have been one of the first when he was when he started the program. He may may have been one of the first CEOs and programs to get kids into private schools. Right. And it's, it's always been a big aim of ours. We can get kids into private schools. That's the route that we will take. You know, we will try desperately hard to, to get them out there, get them out in the Bronx, give them a great education. Um, and, and also back them up when they're there. You know, we can't, we don't just send them off and that's it. We, we are always there for them. We're always checking in with them. So yeah, that's a big aim. Um, in terms of actually lifting the level of urban squash to get closer to that top echelon of the the wealthy and uh, wealthy kids and the, the level that they've got we've urban squash either wants either wants to do that wants to sort of keep the academic side going big time making sure the kids get great educations but i think that the trend now is like they're looking at the squash side saying yeah we've had success on the academic side getting kids into public private schools etc but the squash side we're getting left behind what, what we we want to see if we can catch up um, and you know we're, we're producing some some really good squash players, but we're behind the curve in terms of the top level. And the reason we're behind the curve is most of the coaching that's done in urban squash is group coaching. You know, right, right. Be huge. You know, you maybe have five courts, but you've got something like twenty five, thirty kids. You know, you've got four courts and you've got twenty kids. So how how do you overcome that, Brian? That is a very good question, uh, Jerry. So I'm going to leave that question for you. I want you to I've work got it out. An and idea. Get back I've got an idea. I've got an idea. Well, well, you Great. talked about you talked about sort of retainers uh, earlier. Uh, here's yeah. an, um, I mean, you've got, and and we both know how many talented uh, young professionals are are in the U.S. Uh, nowadays, uh, mm. either the varsity or the private club level. Uh, maybe put your feelers out there and see if any would be, uh, I'm sure this has already been thought of, but uh, feelers out there and see if any would be willing to, uh, you know, come in on a retainer, you know, once a week or, you know, once a month. Uh, and, and if you had like 10 of these guys who would agree mm-hmm. to something like that, there, there you go. I like that idea, Jedi. And I, you know what, I don't, we've, what we have thought about, we've, we've obviously, we, we put emails out to all our, um, you know, or, or, or any coach that's um, associated with, with city squash or urban squash, we put it out and say, hey, any chance you could take our kid? Is there any chance you could, you know, would you, when could you do it, blah, blah, blah. But I actually think, and again, it, it, it's, it's a money thing. You know, if we have the, yeah. which we're charities, so we're always very careful about what we do with our money and where we spend it. If we ever had that money to be able to say, hey, we want to retain you, tell your club, we'd like to retain you for one day a week where yeah. you come in, and take our best place. I think that's a great idea. I think that's an idea that we should be put forward. I'm certainly going to be on to Tim about that and on to Terrence. And can we do this? Um, there I, is. I bet you. I bet you. Uh, the majority of club owners or whoever makes the, make those decisions would be 
really on board and maybe even encourage their their pros to to do it yeah yeah it'd be great it would be it would be great we, i mean in fairness tim who's now the ceo of, of sda squash education alliance right, he right. he actually that there are there's a certain amount of money set aside for any program with a top um urban player i think it's it's actually about two grand a year where you get paid quarterly but you have to be you have to you know you have to set up coaching with a pro um now the tough thing about that is if they if they won't come to you the pro won't come into your courts it's tough for us to get our kids to them because you can't let a sort of 12 year old, you know, go off on his own or her own to, to get to the coach. You've got to, you've got to, you know, organize somebody to take them. Sometimes the, sometimes the parents can't do it or the parent can't do it because they're working or looking after somebody else. It's tough. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of sort of, um, there's a lot of sort of little, little nooks and crannies that you've got to work out to be able to, to, to be able to do that. Well, if, I guess if a pro is tied to a club uh, and they have their own students, then they'll probably want to re- remain as close to home as, uh, yeah. as possible. It, yeah. it, it is tough. I, I think, you know, um, urban squash is getting there slowly. I think mm-hmm. the level of level of squash coaching is, is going up each year um, yeah. in, in all the programs. Um, I mean, one of my, one of my sort of, um, one of my, peeves would be I think every single coach in these private clubs uh, wealthy clubs wherever I think they should have they should have considered working in an urban program for two years to give themselves a good grounding before they go into the private sector so to speak I think it would it would give them a different perspective on life it would give them a different perspective on what it's like to coach inner city urban kids Um, and I think it would I think it would open up their eyes to the possibilities of making these kids actually really good players. Right. You know? How far reaching is U.S. squash's, uh, you know, reach in, in terms of what they can advise club owners or, you know, coaches to do, especially, uh, you know, if you're sponsoring someone from overseas, uh, yeah. come over and coach. Uh, um, I mean, I'm not sure how much involvement, I mean, they obviously support urban squash. You know, and, and I mean, they support, they're very, they're very good in terms of like, they give every urban kid a free membership to U.S. squash, okay. um, yeah. which, which is actually, it, it's smart for them to do that because it, it, when, when they initially did it, it pushed their numbers way up the curve. You know, all of a sudden they're like one of the biggest growth sports in the country because they've given all these kids free memberships. So that looked good, which is great. Um, I'm, I, I'm not, I don't know that they do, there's not a lot. And I'm, you know, they may they may pounce on me, U.S. squash, and there might be litigation here, Jerry, which because I'm going to blame you. Okay, just blame me. <laughs> I, you know, I'll I'll go down with you. Okay. Good. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know that they do a lot for urban squash. They do a little, probably. I mean, they're 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 gonna they're just they're just opening their new 20 court complex in Philadelphia. Right. That is going to be used to add by, to the other 50 courts and that are already in Philadelphia. Yeah. 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 But that it's that that's amazing. That, it is. It's unbelievable, which is great. But that that those courts, some of those courts will be used by Squash Smarts, which is the urban program in Philly. Okay. They will use it. So that's great. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, they're allowing them to do that. So they do support. There's no doubt about it. They are, they're very keen to, for, for urban programs to pop up because it means more kids playing the game. It means more kids being members of the U.S. Squash. So they, 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 they're, they're positively with urban squash for sure. 
No, uh, you've been tremendous uh, with your time. We, uh, this might be one of the longest uh, interviews I've had, and I could go on for hours uh, with you here, Brian, and there's so much, uh, such a wealth of knowledge and, and history with you. Uh, but I do have one more question from the, um, from, from the documentary. You talked about the confidence factor uh, with these kids when they go to play in tournaments. They might have the talent or they might be close enough, but when they get there and they see – you know, a, a guy or, or a girl, young girl coming in with their, you know, with their private coach, with the sponsors, with the rackets, with the kit, with the swag. Uh, yeah. How, uh, and, but you talk, you, you speak uh, a little bit to giving them the sort of tools to maybe overcome that or to maybe have that chip on your shoulder that I think if you have that chip on the shoulder, it would actually trump what they bring uh, to the yeah, court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, you certainly... You can't just tell a kid, hey, we're going to go to a tournament. I'll meet you at such and such a time when we go to the tournament. Um, you, you need to, certainly the ones that are going for the first time, you need to, you know, you need to sit them down, talk them, and go through the things that they need to do. Things like being, being very polite, you know, opening the door, shaking hands, asking what your name is, blah, 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 and, and socializing with your opponent. But also knowing that, you're, that you, have to, you have to tell these kids that they're just as good as the these kids that are about the, you know the white wealthy kids, you're just as good as they are. You're yeah. just as good. There's no difference. My mother, my mother always used to say to me, "You're no better and you're no worse than anybody else in the world. We're all the same, basically." And you know we are all the same. Yeah. You know, yeah. Some people have got more money, less money, whatever. But we're all basically the same. We're human beings. You know, and you get out of life what you put in. These kids. I keep, I keep saying that you've worked hard. You've tried worked just as hard. You've put the time in. You, uh, you know, you're you're a skillful, good, solid player. You have got a chance against anybody you play. Yeah. You know. Now the, the, the kicker then comes. You know, if they win, great. They, that that's brilliant. Well done. You know, keep your feet on the ground because you've got another match to go. If they lose, it's picking them up and saying, hey. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you played great. I mean, as long as I, I will say to any kid, if you if you play as well as you can possibly play, if you give a hundred percent, and you try your heart out, and you win, that's the cherry on the cake. If you do exactly the same, try your heart out, give a hundred percent, work your butt off, and you lose, I always put that question: What does that mean? Mm. And a lot of the kids are like, well, I lost. I'm like, yeah, but what does it mean? You know, you've given everything you've given. You couldn't have given any more. What does that mean? And you, you can you can drag it out of them. It's like it what it basically what it means is you've lost to a better player. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you've given a hundred percent, as long as you've tried your heart out, you've played the best squash you can play, you've you've given given you given a hundred percent in that match and you've lost, that's all we ask you to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you've just lost to a better player. There's no disgrace in that. That's a hard thing from to understand at times. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess uh, uh, to, to, to add to that, I mean, when you lose, you know, some, some people might say you win because it's an opportunity to, uh, to improve and to, yeah. you know, you see the weaknesses in your game and yeah. what you may, what you wouldn't have seen before had you been, I mean, that, that's what, for me, anyways, in my little junior, my, yeah. my career as a player, I, I, I was top junior in Nova Scotia. Every time I go uh, uh, to Ontario or Calgary or you know Alberta, uh, you know I get into the second or third round of the nationals and just get hammered every yeah, yeah. time, uh, every time. And that you know it took me a couple of years to realize, you know they they were learning experiences, but uh, yeah. you know. Those, it's the old, I mean, it's it's the old story, Jack. Every time you lose, you win. 
Yeah. You know, as yeah. You, if you lose, you can't just go away saying, oh, I lost. You go away saying, yeah, I lost. What do I need to do? What do I need to fix? What do I need to make better to me, for me to be able to beat that player the next time? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to hey, tell right. you, Brian, uh, even though we lost there in the beginning today with a few technical difficulties, <laughs> we absolutely won because this was a fantastic uh, chat with you, uh, Brian. I just want to thank you for, for, for doing it. And thanks for every, all that you do with uh, Urban Squash, City Squash there. Uh, the Bronx uh, tale was fantastic. Everyone, uh, if you haven't seen it, go to Squash Skills and see it. And all yeah. the best to you. And I, and I hope everything uh, is uh, fine with you and your family under the, the circumstances uh, these days, Brian. Jerry, thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking to you. And now that I know who you are, great. I hope we meet up again sometime. And uh, thanks. It's been great. It's been great talking to you. Well, that was absolutely awesome. Brian Patterson, episode 149. Uh, so many great stories there to tell, uh, not to mention the fantastic uh, work that he's done with City Squash uh, and which is uh, laid out really well, uh, really well laid out in the documentary Bronx Tale. If you haven't seen that yet, I'm sure you have, uh, but if you haven't seen it yet, it's on Squash Skills. Take a look uh, for that on their website. Uh, it's free, so you can go on there and uh, uh, have a watch. It's fantastic to watch but Brian Patterson thanks so much to him I'd love to have him back on because we I think we only uh, got to the tip of the iceberg there there's so much uh, that he's uh, he's experienced over the years the stories about Jonah and him in the training are great and how he managed to uh, uh, you know get overseas uh, across the pond I guess as they say and uh, that how that all played out was fascinating as well but uh, anyways Brian Patterson thank you uh, so much now uh, just a few days ago, everyone in the squash world was uh, taken by surprise uh, with the sad, you know, sadly hearing the the announcement of Renee Melwilili's uh, retirement. Uh, she's been on the podcast before. Grace personified, class, skill, uh, a true champion, uh, just a, a person that uh, I always loved to watch play. There were a few uh, like uh, like that. I always loved to watch Amir Shabana play. Uh, so graceful there out on the court and uh, Renim is in that same conversation uh, just uh, wanted to wish her all the best in her retirement uh, Tarek obviously had just come on uh, the podcast had I known I would have uh, mentioned something uh, at that point obviously to Tarek but uh, just want to wish uh, Renim and Tarek all the best uh, going forward and she had an unbelievable career and uh, later this week, we're going to have on uh, Jenny Duncalf to uh, to talk about Renim, Renim's career, and that'll be uh, coming up on the podcast uh, later in the week. Also uh, coming up soon, uh, the winner of the 2020 PSA Challenger Tour Player of the Year, Female Player of the Year, Danielle Letourneau, returns to the podcast. And uh, we've got three, actually three, uh, three of the ladies coming on on the trot, as they say. And the third guest being uh, Alex Williams, who has her new squash stories uh, website called The Show Court. And uh, she'll be on to talk about that. She's already written some fantastic stories uh, uh, on uh, Jonathan Power and Diego Elias. And uh, if you haven't uh, seen her website, uh, it's called The Show Court. Uh, it's squash stories. And uh, she'll be coming on to talk about that. So three ladies on the trot. We just had Brian Patterson. And uh, wow, we've got... I've got a few more in the hopper, and things are looking good here on the In Squash Podcast, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, give us a shout-out on uh, social media. I'm on the Instagram, the Facebook, the Twitter. Uh, give me a like or whatever, you know, what they call those things. Likes, tweets, 
retweets, whatever they're called. Uh, it's all good. So uh, everyone have a great day. I hope you get back on the squash court uh, soon. Uh, play it safe, but hopefully we get back on the court soon. Take care and have a great day. Goodbye now.